Welcome to another episode, guys. Today we have a special guest who's here to talk about women's health as well as her research. And she's also the instructor for the Sex, Gender, and Health course. So she'll also be talking about that. And Jennifer, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Jennifer Williams. You can call me Jennifer. Um, I am a fourth year PhD candidate here at McMaster University. I also, as you said, teach the sex, gender, and health course and taking over for Dr. Stacey Ritz this year with that course. Um, yeah, and my research mainly focuses on uh, sex and gender. I look at the effects of different hormonal contraceptives in the cardiovascular system, um, but I have a whole bunch of different research areas that I'm curious about. So happy to chat about that today. Sounds good. Uh, just to get started, do you want to tell us about your research? How did you get involved and why did you choose to do research on your like chosen topic or like what led you to that decision? That's a great question. So I think like many undergraduate students that may be listening to this, I actually started in, in my undergrad. Um, so I started with a course that it was, it was kind of this placement course where you got a chance to get to know um, a research field. So I started in cardiovascular health and I was just fascinated. I had so many questions. Um, and I started actually in sugar research. So what I would do is I would give individuals sugar and I would look at how their cardiovascular system responded to sugar. Um, but at the time I was mainly using males, uh, male individuals in my research. And I started to question like, why am I only using males? That was kind of the dogma of the research lab that I was initially working in was this notion that we should first study this in males and then we'll look at other populations. And I found that really challenging. And so I did some digging and it turns out that with sugar research, about 40 years of research had gone by um, and no study had looked at the effects of sugar in females. And so that's what I decided to do in my master's. I was like, okay, I'm curious about that question. Let's keep going. So I looked at the effects of sugar in, in females and found some cool stuff. And that just probed more and more questions about the fact that female vascular research is really understudied. And I just had a lot more questions that then kind of guided me towards contraceptive research. And um, that there's a lot that we don't know about the different types of contraceptives. There's over 60 different types of contraceptives. And we don't really know the short-term and long-term effects on the cardiovascular system fully. And so that's what my research right now is currently doing. We're actually just in the middle of all of our study testing. And I can tell you some current results, what we're up to. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what, what my work focuses on. Nice. Yeah, I really like that you saw an issue and you kind of like went through and like followed through that with your life. I think that's really cool. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us like more about what you're actually doing right now? Like what's where in the research process are you? Right <laughs> yeah. So we are deep in data collection right now. So as you can think about the kind of scientific method, we designed a question, created a methodology. Right now, we're about two thirds way through most of our data collection for our studies. So I can tell you about two really big studies that we have going on right now that uh, I'm very excited once we start to get some results coming from it. So one of the studies that we're working on right now is looking at the short and long-term effects of taking different types of contraceptives. So I have individuals in the study who are naturally cycling, they're not on contraceptives. And then I have two groups of folks who are on different types of contraceptives, oral pills. And what we look at is the effects on different early risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So before someone actually gets cardiovascular disease later in life, we're interested in looking at how there are these small changes that are happening in the arteries of the body that make them stiffer or less elastic, and that that eventually will lead to cardiovascular disease. So we're interested in looking at this early on in young, healthy people. So that's one study that we have going on, and that's been going pretty well. 
And then another study that I'm doing right now is looking at the short-term or acute effects of taking Plan B, which is an emergency contraceptive drug. It's used in about one in 10 females will take it at some point in, in their lifetime. Um, and we really don't know much about Plan B. And so that is one study that we're looking at, just what happens in the cardiovascular system immediately after you take uh, this Plan B medication. So those are two big trials that we have going on. I'm also doing a whole bunch of research in cell culture models. Um, so that's where we take blood from humans and we put it on cells in our incubators. And we look at what happens with like the mechanisms underlying cardiovascular disease. And that actually came out in part uh, because of the pandemic. Our research labs were shut down for 14 months. We had to pivot. And so we did a bunch of cell culture research in the meantime. So yeah, that's what I've been working on. That's pretty cool. A lot of research projects going on. Um, I know you said there weren't any, you're still in the data collection phase, not really like results yet, but from what you have seen through your research mm -hmm. so far, through your various projects, um, what do you think about like the future of hormonal contraceptives or plan B? And is there anything that leads you to believe that there should be more funding? Like, do you think women's health mm -hmm. receives enough funding? I mean, obviously like not many research fields receive any, like enough funding at all, but like what really stands out to you? I'd say to your first question as to what we're finding so far, I can, I can speak to some of the research that went on prior to me and then what's currently out in the field. Right now, there's research to suggest that one type of contraceptive, it's called a second generation pill, um, may actually result in impaired or, or less arterial function. So could actually lead to cardiovascular disease later in life. Um, one type of pill may lead to that. Whereas another type of pill may actually augment or improve cardiovascular health uh, for females. So that's what we're currently testing in the lab. Other folks have found that in the world. And so we're trying to replicate that and build on that work. Um, so that's one thing that we've previously seen. Um, because the research has suggested that that one type of pill, a second generation pill may impair cardiovascular health, the contents of plan B actually contain the same hormone, the same progesterone as that pill, just in much larger dosages. So a plan B pill is like 10 times the amount of an oral contraceptive pill. So we actually think that plan B may also hinder or impair the cardiovascular system, at least acutely. So that's what I'm currently thinking is going to happen and what we're seeing currently in our research. In terms of where I see the field going, I mean, as we continue to challenge what types of, con and kind of inform individuals on, on what types of contraceptives might be good or bad for the cardiovascular system. My hope is that that then educates females and also healthcare providers on maybe there's a type of pill that would be better to put females on instead of a different one. Um, like if you found out that the pill that you're on may actually not be great for your cardiovascular health, would that then make a change in your decision-making for the type of contraceptive that you're on. Also knowing that females are on contraceptives now a lot longer than they used to be. You know, some females I'm testing have been on it for seven, 10 years. Um, so you think about that a lot. Um, in terms of where the field's going, I mean, what we're now seeing is that a lot more females are choosing long-term contraceptive options. So they're choosing like IUDs, for example, that has seen like the rates have skyrocketed in terms of IUDs. So that's kind of what our next area of research wants to focus on is, is the use of IUDs and how that impacts the cardiovascular system. So that's where we're heading. I mean, I think that women's health research definitely is underfunded. Um, and I think, but more recently has been getting a lot more attention. I think that's due in part to some of the leading experts in Canada calling attention to the fact that females have been underappreciated, excluded, underrepresented in 
basic biomedical research as well as clinical research. Um, you see organizations like the Heart and Stroke Foundation and CIHR, which is like a major health research funding body. You see them saying things like females are under-researched, underappreciated, underfunded. And that gives us female, like that gives me as a, as a researcher who does women's health research, excitement and want, wanting to continue on with this work to know that we're being appreciated by these different advocacy bodies. So I think there's definitely more work that needs to be done. Um, I do think more funding needs to be put into women's health research. Um, and I, I can imagine that you would agree with that as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely think, as you said, even before, like all of your research before in cardiovascular health was like all male. So I definitely have to agree with you there. And just to like, with that in mind to follow up, what are your thoughts on like some of the barriers to women's health? Have you like encountered any yourself or are there any that you've seen like very like predominantly in your research, et cetera, whether that be like social, physical stereotypes, anything? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and actually it's kind of cool. Um, we recently published a paper, came out yesterday. So I'm happy to share that with you and your readership. Um, we actually looked at that exact question um, in our field. So we asked, um, what are the reasons for why individuals are excluded from um, cardiovascular health research? So we looked at like a specific measure in our field. And what we found is that there is, so we confirmed a male bias, that there is a male bias for males being included more so in cardiovascular exercise physiology research than females. And we asked the question as to like, why is that happening? Um, and we found four reasons. The main one that I find curious is that females are often excluded because their bodies are seen to be more complicated than that of males. Females have hormonal cycles. We have fluctuations in our hormone levels that might make it more perceived to be more complicated to study. Um, I would argue that's not the case. Um, in our research, we have actually found that females are not nearly as complicated to study. And you do need to put in some controls. You need to be thoughtful about your methods, but they're not that complicated. So that shouldn't be an excuse anymore. And I think in this paper that we wrote, we kind of called to attention that. Um, there are some other like very practical reasons why I think females have had barriers to engaging in cardiovascular research. I think one of the most common ones is actually when you look at um, like recruitment efforts for clinical research, oftentimes you find that males are included in those studies a whole lot more than females. And that may be due to just physicians not um, referring uh, females to cardiac rehab as much as males or that males are often more present in uh, areas like cardiac rehab, stroke rehabilitation, those types of things. So I think that's also a pretty big barrier. And then we also see that, you know, uh, women trying to access uh, clinical programming, there are barriers in terms of other responsibilities that they have in their life. So caregiving responsibilities that can sometimes get in the way of opportunities to, you know, you have, you have family to take care of, you have work that you're that you're attending to in your career and then on top of that you might have a cardiovascular condition and you're trying to balance all those things so i think there's definitely quite a bit of research out there to share that women have these inherent barriers to accessing uh, cardiac care um, and so i think that might be in part why we're not seeing women at least in clinical research studies as much so yeah i think there's definitely some inherent barriers there yeah did not expect the whole like complexity. I would think if a woman's body is more complex, that's like even more reason to study it. So we can better right. understand it. Yeah. Um, so just to follow up with that, what do you think are some solutions to how do we can address these problems? So I think 
on the complexity of the female body question, I think the first is to challenge that very underlying notion that I actually don't think the female body is nearly as complicated, nor that the complexity of it having differences in the hormonal cycle, depending on your research question, may not matter all that much. At least in our research, we're finding that the small changes across hormonal cycles may not play as big a role as we used to think. And so I think we need to challenge ourselves by recognizing that female bodies are not nearly as complex and maybe working with people who, like me, who understand controls that might need to be put in place to support testing females. So testing during certain hormonal phases, for example. So that's what I get a chance to do with my colleagues a lot. Um, I think the other place is when it comes to women being included in like clinical research studies, I think it's about removing barriers that exist in that connection. So for example, um, you know, there's quite a bit of research around if you put in place like childcare, so women trying to come into a cardiac rehab setting to do exercise training, if you put in place childcare, it removes the barrier then of that woman trying to find childcare for, for her children. And she then comes to, to training. So I think having that space is helpful. Also, maybe bringing your research space to the individual that you're trying to test. Um, there's a lot of work right now that talks about going out into the community and like meeting individuals where they're at instead of trying to bring them into a research lab. And I think that that will remove a lot of barriers of just like trying to access uh, these different research studies. So I think that those are big things. I mean, I also think a lot of that comes down to funding. Um, there's definitely if you are able to fund uh, women's research, then it allows for just this growth and momentum of hiring more trainees, hiring more, like funding more research labs to be able to get out there and do research on, on females and women particularly. So yeah, I think, I think that's kind of what we need as a next step. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I'd say also based on your current research, do you think there are any laws or policies that should be enacted with regards to like maybe use or even like even like research policies, like having to study like both genders, for example? Yeah, that is a great question. So I think where we're at right now here in Canada, so it might be helpful to share that. So in the U.S., the notion of including both sexes in research studies really started in like mid 1990s and crept up to Canada. So so we started to see some changes in our clinical research. Um, and, but it was really not mandated here in Canada, um, really until the last couple of years where funding bodies started to say, Hey, we need to include like males and females in research studies. You need to maybe consider sex and gender in your, in your work. Um, but that's right now not mandated for basic clinical research or basic preclinical research. It is for clinical research. So when you apply to funding bodies, you have to share what your plan is to look at for sex and gender. I think by mandating that, even at a basic uh, research perspective, like in basic research funding applications, I think that would help tremendously. Um, I think also what I'm seeing right now at the research publication stage is quite exciting. Um, there are journals that are now saying, we will not accept your research study unless you consider sex and gender in your research design. So if you're looking at a question that it doesn't make sense to exclude males or females on the basis of sex, like unless you're studying, for example, what I study with contraceptive use, it's almost exclusively uh, a female situation. That would be like a, a reasonable exclusion of males. Um, but if you're, if you don't have a reasonable exclusion, then that study then doesn't get published. 
So I'm seeing more and more journals taking up the, the torch of saying like, we need to include sex and gender in our research designs and providing some guidance to researchers on how exactly to do that. I think if you provide the, the mandating, the policies at the end of research, so saying, you know, you won't get funding, you won't get um, your, your published articles unless you include these, these considerations. I think that that really does change um, methods, designs, and, and how we design our studies. So I think that's part of what needs to change. I think a large part is also education. Um, I know when I initially started into even questioning, like, why am I studying only males? I felt this tremendous when I when I jumped into female uh, physiology research. I felt um, uh, Dr. Ritz calls it this paralysis, um, where you find out about there's sex, there's different layers of sex, there's many different types of gender and ways to look at gender, and that can be really, uh, yeah, like for me, it was there was a level of paralysis. It can be scary jumping into that field. Um, I think education is needed. So I think having courses like the sex and gender course here at McMaster is really helpful for just understanding first the fundamentals of what sex and gender is, and then maybe challenging those fundamentals and perhaps looking at some research methodology, how you can actually include sex and gender in your research. I think if trainees, if undergraduate students, graduate students, even faculty members were to take courses or, or be educated on sex and gender, I think that would lead to better science. And um, so I'm hopeful I'm part of that, that movement. And I know many others are, are doing that work to educate the next kind of group of trainees that are coming up um, and will become the next faculty and lead researchers here in Canada. Yeah, so with that in mind, you mentioned sex, gender and health. So <laughs> we're gonna jump right into that. So you're the instructor for sex, gender and health this year. What drew you to teaching the course initially? Yeah, so like many things I've found in my life thus far, um, I kind of stumbled upon the course um, when I came to Mac in my first year, um, my first year uh, here in my PhD. Um, I was giving a talk on some of my work and Dr. Stacy Ritz, um, who is a faculty member here in health sciences, was also giving a talk on some of her work. And we just connected and realized that we both share interests in uh, inclusion within science, inclusion within biomedical research and sex and gender. And yeah, she invited me to kind of take part in her course. Uh, so I shadowed the first year, kind of learned a lot about what the students were focusing on. I was a teaching assistant for a couple more years after that, and then I've recently taken over the course this year. And yeah, that, that was kind of the how I came to be a part of the course. Um, in terms of what drew me to it, I mean, I'm fascinated by the, the content of the course, obviously, like the fact that we get to every week talk about a different health condition or disease state and look at it from both a biomedical perspective. So looking at sex from, uh, you know, genes and chromosomes and anatomy, but then we also get to look at this whole area of sociocultural research, which as a basic biomedical researcher like myself, I was never exposed to sociocultural research really um, in my undergrad. And so to be able to now question things like how does ethnicity play a role in health conditions? Um, how does gender intersect with other identities? in how we experience health, how we interact within the healthcare system. So I was fascinated by that. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of it also has to do with, I think the way that the course is structured encourages dialogue with students. Um, it's a very different course than 
kind of memorizing content and sharing that on an exam or um, writing an essay. It's, it's a very different course. So a lot of our weeks are focused on just discussing and learning from each other and learning about our different perspectives. And for that reason, I actually find I'm learning just as much as I hope I'm sharing with my students um, because each one of them, when they're reading the papers that we cover every week, they're sharing perspectives back to me that I hadn't thought of before. And I'm like, wow, that's a really cool idea. And it helps to, I'm then better educated and hopefully the students in the class also get to hear different perspectives from different identities. So I think that's what drew me to pursuing the course and, and now teaching it. That's very cool. Um, just for some context for yeah. our listeners, do you want to give us like an overview of what topics you cover every week and also the actual like format of the course? Because you mentioned oh, a lot yeah. of like discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I would be happy to. So the way that the course is structured is the first couple of weeks, we focus on reflecting on our own understandings at the start of sex and gender. So I have the students do a reflective exercise. They just talk about how they've seen sex and gender in their own in their own lives. Then we focus the first couple of weeks on understanding what sex, what gender is, how different scholars look at sex and gender, and kind of coming up with our own personal definitions of what those look like. So that's kind of setting the, what I would like to call the foundation stage for, we're all on the same page, we all understand what these words mean, and what types of discussions there might be within that. Um, a lot of those early weeks also comes to kind of breaking down stigmas around sex and gender, breaking down our basic understandings of sex and gender are not binaries. It's not male, female, man, woman, there's spectrums, there's layers. And so it's kind of breaking down those initial um, kind of discourses that exist. So that's the first bit. Then we spend about five weeks focusing on different case studies. And by case study, I mean different health conditions and looking at how biological sex and sociocultural gender influence or interact within those health conditions. So we look at like cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Uh, we did a, a week on pain, which is a fascinating week. Um, immunological conditions. And then I usually give my students uh, a choice. So the last week is like class choice and they decided to focus on hormonal contraceptives and hormonal conditions. So I'm like, cool, I know a lot about that. I could talk about that. So um, that's the kind of next couple weeks. And then right now what we're doing in the course is we're focusing on more advanced level understanding of sex and gender. So after we have all this foundation, we then break down even further some more like advanced understanding of how we could look at sex and gender as non-binary constructs, as um, even challenging the very notions we talked about early in the class. So more advanced stuff. And uh, this upcoming week, we're talking about methods. So how do we actually take what we've learned and put it into either research for folks who are wanting to go into research, or if you're wanting to go into like healthcare practice, how do you consider the types of questions that you ask future patients. So my hope is that when students leave the class, if they want to become a basic biomedical researcher, sociocultural researcher, they know how to add sex and gender into their research. And then if they want to head down, like becoming a doctor or becoming like a PT or an OT, that they might consider the interactions that they have with their patients um, and how that might be influenced by the sex and the gender of not just the patient, but also your own identity. Um, so yeah, and then at the very end of the course, we do um, a case study project. So the students all term kind of throughout have been learning about different healthcare, different health conditions. 
So what I have them do is halfway through the course, they pick a topic, they work in a group of four, and they develop their own case study. So their own examination of how sex and gender influence uh, things like Alzheimer's disease and bipolar. Um, I have one group, fascinating, they're looking at discrimination within healthcare and how that's influenced by sex and gender. Um, so they look at that, and then at the end of term, they submit a case study report, and there's also a presentation. So they get to share back with their peers what they've been learning about all term as a mini case study. And then, so that's kind of the whole, the whole course. How it's structured in terms of our classes is I usually provide like a mini lecture at the start just to set the tone for the class. Um, so we're all on the same page about like what a disease is. And then we do small breakout groups talking about each of these different articles. I assign three a week and they choose one to read. And so we talk about different biomedical articles have a small group discussion and then a large group discussion. And then we focus on our sociocultural articles. So again, small group discussion, large group discussion. So it's a very like discussion focused class. It's not, you're not memorizing content. It's meant to be about learning, reflecting, and maybe challenging preconceived notions around sex and gender. And that's the class. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, do you find it difficult to teach a course about you know, the topic of sex, gender, and health, especially with certain stigmas and like stereotypes that might be around it. Um, and what are also some challenges that you have faced and maybe like content delivery or even just like facilitating those discussions? That is a great question. I think particularly for this year, as we switched from online to in-person slash hybrid learning, it was definitely, a, I'd say that was my greatest challenge. I can speak to that. In terms of the content delivery, I mean, I'm very passionate about sex and gender research. I do think I'm still learning in my understanding. I think um, I think most faculty would say that they're still learning in their understanding of a particular field. You know, there's constant research coming out. And so I try my best to keep up with that work and to be sharing with my students where there are spaces where I'm really an expert in an area and where there are places where I'm less expert um, and where I would rely on, uh, you know, the articles that we're reading or actually I bring in guest speakers who are more familiar with areas like diabetes research, immunological conditions, um, you know, fields that, I mean, I'm a cardiovascular researcher, so I'm not as familiar with like asthma research. So I would bring in people who are experts in that um, and to look at sex and gender. So I think that's probably from the content delivery perspective. Um, I would say early on in the term, there's always this, this space of um, learning the language that we speak to each other in. Um, and I often find that the students will, will share like, I don't know if I'm saying this right, or I don't know if I'm using the word right. Um, I don't know the definition of something that we're exploring. And so I try to create a space in the classroom where it's like, it's okay if you don't know you know, the words that you're using, all that I ask is that you be respectful when you're exploring words, when you're exploring language, um, when you're talking to each other. Um, so we, we use, we learn tons of different words that many, many students haven't examined or explored before. Um, and even in like sex and gender and learning about like gender as a spectrum and different sex layers, these are all new concepts. And so it challenges the students. It can be uncomfortable sometimes in that growth. Um, but I think if you make a space for reflection and kind of sharing that, um, I don't know, being vulnerable myself and saying like, hey, I'm still learning, we're all learning. This is a space for us to come in and learn together. Um, I think that's really helped with breaking down those stigmas and, and kind of those preconceived notions that I shared. Um, I'd say in terms of how the course has been delivered this year has been particularly interesting. We spent the first, as you know, the first 
what, four or five weeks was spent online. And then there was this awkward in-person stage where we all shifted back to in-person. And um, what I tried to do in that is, you know, adopting how I was teaching um, to those different spaces. I think in-person giving students a little bit more time to like acclimatize to like, hey, this is for many of them the first time that they'd ever been in a lecture hall, talking to people, introducing themselves, knowing what it's like not to have to like unmute yourself in a breakout room on Zoom. <laughs> I think we can all appreciate like the emotional cognitive load that now being in person can feel sometimes exhausting. Like we talked about Zoom fatigue being a thing during the pandemic. I think in-person fatigue is also very real. And I see that in my students. Um, so yeah, trying to adapt. I think also um, in the classroom, I've created like a hybrid environment. So um, I use some technology in the class so that students who want to join on Microsoft Teams can also freely engage, speak, and be hear what's going on in the classroom. So they can pick up discussions that we're having. Um, you know, they can chime in and they'll be um, like their voice online will be portrayed through a speaker so that students in the class can hear them. So I think by creating a hybrid environment, I think it it really allowed for students to have choice this semester when there didn't, it didn't feel like there was a ton of choices in terms of shifting back to in-person. So I think that's helped create, I would hope a positive environment for, for the students to engage with each other, but that's what, that's what we've been up to this term. And just to sort of wrap this area up, like what do you hope students take away from this course? That is a good question. <laughs> um, I think because the course is, there's a large focus on discussion with each other and also on own personal reflections. My absolute hope with the students is that they walk away continuing to challenge underlying notions of what sex and gender are and how they intersect within their own understandings of health and healthcare and interactions within the healthcare system. My honest hope is that even if a student has walked in initially with understandings of sex and gender, that those are then challenged and that they're coming up with their own personal definitions, understandings, and hopefully can talk to other people about that. Like my hope is that students walking away from this course are many experts in looking at sex and gender. And maybe if they interact with a patient or, you know, in the future, they're, they're learning about something like cardiovascular disease or diabetes, and they can then ask the question about how does sex and gender influence that? Um, so yeah, my hope, my hope is that, you know, taking away from this course that they're reflecting um, and challenging their under, under underlying notions and maybe bringing forward that into whatever future career they end up taking on. Yeah, that's a really like nice thing I'd say it's like to have to take away. Um, and also I would ask, What's your advice for anybody that might be looking to learn more about women's health and investigating women's health? Like how do you think somebody could get involved with it? Yeah, great question. Um, so I would say there's, there's kind of two key ways that I would recommend getting involved. I think the first is uh, an education point. So I would take, say taking the sex and gender and health course is a great way to learn about uh, women's health, but also people's health uh, and how sex and gender intersect within that. 
Um, I do think that there are some really great women's health organizations, especially here in Canada. We are very much a hub for women's health. Um, there's several out of, uh, you know, downtown Toronto um, in terms of the Women's Health Co women's College um, and different health institutes that are in downtown Toronto. Um, there's also a big cluster, the Women's Health Research Institute. Uh, there's a cluster out in um, British Columbia that do a lot of really great work there as well. So I think learning about organizations, maybe attending webinars, seminars, looking at some of their research online, and maybe just on the flip side, let's say you're looking at a condition, like I was chatting with one of my students just this week about he does research in allergies. And he was asking the question about, you know, how could I incorporate sex and gender into my allergy research? And I'm like, just by asking that question, that, that's an amazing step forward. So I think ask the question in your field, if you are studying something, if you're doing research and you're curious about how sex and gender influence that, go start, ask that question and then start to do research at, at how that could be investigated. And if you find, like I did in my field, that there isn't a lot of research that had been done on women's health, then maybe you're the researcher to start that work. Um, and maybe you're the one to actually ask those questions and to start investigating the effects of sex or looking at just different gender constructs on whatever health condition you're looking at. So yeah, I think there's education. And then I think if you're a researcher and you wanna ask the question, go for it. Yeah, all right. I think with that in mind, we might wanna wrap up, mm -hmm. but is there, are there any things that you want, especially want to just like tell people or share or like anything that you feel like we haven't covered that you wanna just like get out to the world? Hmm, that is a good question. I think we covered a lot of a lot of bases in terms of um, different research and, and education. Um, I would say one of the key things that I would walk away from, because I think your readership or listen listenership, <laughs> I think your folks are there are a lot of undergraduate students, right, who tend to listen in on, on these podcasts. Um, what I would say to undergraduates, especially, is like, don't be afraid to go and explore research. Um, it has been one of the most incredible opportunities for me and I would really encourage you. And I know sometimes that initial email might seem scary to send or what I encourage for my students is because I, I get a chance to work with a lot of undergrad students with my research. Um, I often encourage like go into a lab and shadow a researcher for a day, just see what they do. Just go in and ask them questions and be curious. Because um, I find that was the way, by being curious, that's what ended up leading me to women's health research. So that's what I'd recommend. Um, and then I would also say, like, continue to educate yourself. Um, take courses. Uh, there's some great certificate programs on sex and gender. Attend webinars. Look at research. Um, that's really one of the best ways that you can understand women's health work and, and hopefully be curious about asking questions about research for yourself for your own work in the future. So yeah, I'd say those would be my big two for, uh, for specifically for undergraduate students. Sounds good. I really like your advice and thank you for coming on to the podcast to talk to us today about everything you said is very insightful. I, I feel like I personally learned a lot of things. So she'll say thank you for coming on and speaking on. Thank you so much for having me. No, this was a ton of fun. And um, I'm very excited to see Yeah, if any of your uh, viewers, uh, listeners have any questions or want to reach out more than happy to you can share my email and happy to happy to chat further. Mm -hmm.